Please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, this is Mother's Day, as we've said, but we're continuing our study of 2 Samuel as we've looked at the life of David, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel 13. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of the David and Bathsheba saga. So if you don't remember the story of David and Bathsheba, David basically sees Bathsheba, he takes her, he um, uses his position, has an affair, ends up murdering, um, murdering Uriah and committing incredible evil. And in chapter 12, God graciously sends Nathan the prophet to confront David over his adultery, over his deception, and over his murder of Uriah. And in chapter 12, we see that God's word through Nathan shatters David and brings him to repentance. We get Psalm 51 out of that episode. Though David is forgiven, God reveals in chapter 12 that there will be severe consequences for David and his house. Even though he's forgiven, there will still be consequences. This is, what David, this is what God says in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. God says through Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. <clears throat> so Second Samuel 13 is the beginning of all the troubles that the Lord is going to bring upon David. David chose his sin and rebellion, but he does not get to choose his consequences. Now, as we begin, I want you to all know, especially for parents of young children, that what we are about to read is rated R Bible. There's nowhere else to say it. This is a tragic section of Scripture. It's filled with horror. There are five characters, <clears throat> excuse me, there are five characters in this chapter who are all part of the royal family. Four men and one woman. The men are David, Amnon, David's son, Jonadab, David's advisor, and Absalom, another of David's sons. The young woman is David's daughter named Tamar, who also is the full sister of Absalom. Only this young woman, Tamar, is presented by the author as being righteous and godly in this episode. All four of these other men, unrighteous and ungodly. Okay? Now, the other four characters are described, are characterized by what we call godlessness or ungodliness, which is demonstrated by their actions and their attitudes. Okay? Now, ungodliness simply means without God. Ungodliness without God. It is thinking, living, acting, behaving, or making choices without any reference to God or apart from God or as though God doesn't exist or matter. Right? 
It is me making decisions and choices apart from God. It is ungodliness or godlessness. Okay? Now, ungodliness or godlessness can be intentional or unintentional. But the results are the same. Either way, it is a sinful substitution of the self in God's place. Now listen, because we are all fallen, sinful human beings, we all have an incredible inclination, an incredible disposition towards godlessness. It is our default position. Now, we may accuse secular humanists and atheists or pagans of godlessness, but believers can be just as guilty of it. Today, we're going to be seeing how this plays out in 2 Samuel 13. Now, I'm going to begin by simply reading Tamar's words to Amnon, to, uh, as they are the central feature of this chapter. And we're going to do something that none of the other men in this chapter do, which is listen to her. All right? On Mother's Day, take note, you should listen to the women in your life. They are much smarter than you. Okay? That's a great place, ladies, for an amen. And in this chapter, she is the one that no one listens to, and they should listen to her. Look at verses beginning in verse 10 through verse 19. Verses 10 through verse 19. It says there in the middle of verse 10, And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this ungodly thing. As for me... Where can I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. All right, now, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Now, verse 13 is the key. In verse 13, Tamar speaks wisely and correctly. She seeks to protect herself and Amnon and honor God, because what Amnon has done is wickedness. It is wanton evil. It is ungodly, and it is unrighteous. It is acting as those who do not know God outside of Israel. So my plan this morning is to simply look at each of these four men as they choose to live and act in ungodly ways, particularly in this chapter. So let's just break it down. It's a long chapter. We'll have to read it as we go. But the first thing I want you to see is the ungodly passion 
of Amnon. The ungodly passion of Amnon. Let's begin reading in verses 1 and 2. Let's get the story. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, skip down to verse 6. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come to make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took the dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand and Tamar took the cake she had brought uh, the cakes that she had brought them uh, sorry and Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother but when she brought them near to eat him he took of, he took her by the hand okay now we've read the rest of that part of the story now I want you to notice first how um, notice first here how Amnon's infatuation with his sister progresses through these verses. It might have started innocently enough, but it quickly grew into an obsession that affected his very demeanor and emotional state. It quickly controls him, because that is what lust must do. It must control, it must consume, and it must destroy. And it leads him to putting together a plot with Jonadab, we'll read that in a minute, to get her alone so that he can do as he pleases. But also note here that this is a particularly insidious kind of lust. We are dealing here with incest. Forbidden incest. Notice how he appeals to her as his sister. Come and lay with me, my sister. And she rebuts him as her brother. So here we're dealing with a half-brother and sister, but nonetheless, the, the law of Moses is crystal clear. Listen to what Leviticus 18, 9 and 11 say. This is the law of God. It says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter. You remember during this time, several times there were families that had multiple wives, there were multiple sibling pairs that are half-brother and sister. He says there, whether brought up in the family or in another home, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. Brought up in your father's family, she is your sister. So, this is precisely why Tamar said, this thing is not done in Israel. It is forbidden. But God's, matter, but God's word matters little when lust is involved. So the text says he grabbed her and he raped her. And Deuteronomy says that that is a capital offense worthy of death. Amnon has done the unspeakable. It is outrageous. And after the deed is done, the author makes clear in verse 15 that Amnon was not driven by love, 
but by lust. He must have and he must take. It's very similar to what David had done with Bathsheba. He must have and he must take. He's not interested, Amnon isn't interested in the self-sacrifice or the self-giving that is required in biblical covenantal love. And so the text says after he's done with her, he hates her and throws her out. And you must know here that it says that he hated her much more than he loved her. Listen, there is no great distance between lust and hate. We might think there is a great distance between them. They are sisters. Lust and hate go together. We saw this again in David's own treatment of Bathsheba. You must hate someone to simply see them as a tool or a vehicle to please your own sinful and selfish desires. Just like Amnon, our culture seems to be ruled not by our almighty creator, but by their almighty genitalia. Just let that sink in for a minute. Our culture is not controlled by almighty God, but by almighty sex. That is what it is. Listen, it is ungodly to think that the God who made us and who made us with a purpose does not intend for us to use his good gifts according to his purposes. That is ungodliness, living apart from God. Paul says it plainly in 1 Thessalonians 4 for the believer. Listen, listen to the New Testament qualification of this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to possess and control his own body in holiness and honor. Right? We control our body in holiness and honor. Now listen to this. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That sounds a lot like Tamar. This thing is not done. This is only done among those who do not know God. And that's exactly what Paul says. Paul says that being controlled by our passions and lust is ungodly. It is acting as those who do not know God. That is exactly what Amnon is doing. So we would do well to remember that lust is not our Lord. Jesus is. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. That's the ungodly lust of Amnon. Notice, secondly, the ungodly wisdom of Jonadab. We haven't talked about Jonadab yet. Look back at verses 3 through 5 as we are introduced to Jonadab. Go back there to verse 3. It says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Make the family connection there. This is the uncle of Amnon. Am I right? Amnon's cousin. It's somebody. All right? Let's read that again. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah. Shemaiah is David's brother. Okay? So this makes this is his first cousin. All right? And, so, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? 
And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So right here, the writer describes Jonadab as skillful and sharp. Some translations say he's crafty, much like the serpent in Genesis 3. Other words we might use would be he's practical, he's pragmatic, he's insightful, he's effective, he's a good politician, an advisor to the king who knows how to get results. Now, I read an anecdote this week in my studies about the vicar of Bray. You might not know who that was, but let me tell you who he was. The vicar of Bray, he was a Catholic under Henry VIII. He was a Protestant under Edward VI. He was Catholic again under Queen Mary. And then he was a Protestant again during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. Someone criticized him as bringing shame and scandal on his calling. And this is what the vicar said, quote, He says, I cannot help that. If I changed my religion, I am sure to keep true to my principle, which is to live and die as the vicar of Bray. Put all that together. His main principle was to live and die the vicar of Bray, He had no principles when it came to being Protestant or Catholic. None. All that matters is his station and the results. What we see in Jonadab is worldly wisdom filled with pride, self, but not filled with any guiding or guarding principles. Listen, Jonadab has no regard for God's law, which forbids this. There is no regard for the king's name or family. There's no regard for Tamar's honor or safety. Jonadab can teach you how to expand cities, build beautiful parks, build efficient public utilities. He can administer and govern and advise just as well as he can prostitute out the David's prostitute out David's daughter. He can do whatever you're looking for. He can do either one. And let's go down now and look at the rest of what he does in verses 32 through 35 as we skip a little bit ahead. The Bible gives us a little bit more about him after Absalom does his deed to Amnon, which we'll read about momentarily. Look there now in verses 32 through 35. It says, But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's sons, uh, all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart, so as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. Huh. What we have here is, again, worldly wisdom. It's all just part of being wise in the eyes of the world. Jonadab knows the ins and outs of politics. He knows the ins and outs of David's administration. And he knows the ins and outs of Absalom's plans, which we will read about in a second. He knows that the rest of David's sons are safe. And only Amnon, whom 
he has instructed earlier in the story has perished. Now, the issue is that all of this is godlessness. It's the world's wisdom, not God's. Jonadab's craftiness didn't bring God's peace, but the enemy's destruction and ruin. Hear me. You cannot have God's peace through godless scheming. That's not how it comes about. James warns us of this kind of godless, ungodly wisdom. Listen to what James says in chapter 3. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where... He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's not what we see in Jonadab. We see the world's wisdom. It's wisdom without principles. Number, third, number three, notice secondly the ungodly anger of David. Look back at verse 21 as we skip back in the story again to where David is confronted with the truth about Amnon and what has happened with Tamar. We have one verse about King David basically here, and that is verse 21. It says there, When, the king, when king David heard all of these things, heard about Amnon, heard about Tamar, Heard her running through the halls, crying and weeping. It says, when David heard all of these things, he was very angry. That's it. Just as Jonadab demonstrates wisdom without any principles, David here shows us anger without justice. Anger without righteousness. This is all we get from David on this topic. Tamar tears her clothes in mourning. She weeps aloud all through the palace. She's living as a widow in the house of Absalom. And David is simply angry. That's it. Now let me just say here that this should be very straightforward for David the king and David the father. It should be very straightforward. Tamar must be exonerated. Her dignity protected and restored. Amnon must be punished. But again, coming right on the heels of, David, of the story of David and Bathsheba, there's hypocrisy abounding for all, right? Maybe David only sees his own failings in Amnon. He knows the hypocrisy of it all. Now, you might understand that line of reasoning, but understanding something offers no excuse for it. There is no excuse. I can understand David's thinking, well, I'm no better. Sure, but this is your daughter, and this is a son, and this is Israel, and you're the king. There is no excuse. David heard, David knows, David gets angry, David does nothing. Now listen, David's anger was all that man's anger can ever accomplish, which is a whole lot of nothing. What does the Bible say? James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And what I want you to know here in this story is David here, for those of you that have read First and Second Samuel, for those that track along with the themes and the stories and the pictures, right here David becomes the second Eli in the book of Samuel. Do you remember, do you remember Eli, the prophet? 
That's 1 Samuel chapters 3, 4, and 5. You remember him? He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who kept laying with the women at the tent of meeting, and they kept offering the wrong sacrifices and stealing, and God kills them. And God kills Eli because he would not discipline his sons. And so right here, who would have thought, who would have thought that David, the great covenant king, would be just as guilty as Eli regarding his own children? And this is just another reminder, again, as I've said over and over again, God's kingdom isn't safe in the hands of David. David is just another fallen human being. But he's under God's grace and covenant in order to point us to Jesus. That's why he's here. Jesus is coming from David's line despite the destruction wrought by David's sin and Amnon's sin and Absalom's sin, which is where we turn next. Let's notice fourth and finally the ungodly vengeance of Absalom. Look back at verse 20. So we see how all of this gets put together. Look there in verse 20. This is right after she goes out with her hand, her head in her hands, weeping and crying. And it says, and her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And now skip down to verse 22. It says, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Bel Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us all not go, lest we be burdensome to you. And he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing there tore their, their garments. And then Jonadab shows up again. Don't worry, David. Your sons are fine. Only Amnon is dead because Absalom has been stewing over this for two years. Take that to heart, David. Amnon alone is dead. And then the story ends with Absalom fleeing. Verse 34, but Absalom fled. The young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to Behold, the king's sons have come, and as your servant has said, everybody needs servants like Jonadab. So it has come about, and as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up a voice and wept, and the king also and his servants wept bitterly, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, and the son of Amilahud, king of Gezer, and David, Gesher, and David mourned for his son day after day. Wow. So what we see here in these last few verses 
is that David's failure to act did not bring justice and righteousness. In fact, David's inaction is injustice. That's what it is. Tamar does not receive justice, which she most assuredly deserved. David knew it. Amnon knew it. Jonadab knew it. And Absalom surely knew it. So injustice only begets more injustice. David's failure to act produces the vigilante vengeance of another son, Absalom. What we see here is that Absalom knows what has happened. He brings Tamar to his house. He doesn't say anything good or bad to Amnon. And by the way, the text is silent on whether or not he brings the charges to David. But we're told straightforwardly that Absalom hates him. He hates him because of what he did to his sister. We also see here how bitterness grows. Absalom sits on this and stews on this for two years. Two years with no justice from the king, no justice from any of the other officials. Bitterness, anger, rage, and all of this leads to what? Murder. Like father, like son. Just as an aside, I like taking an aside every now and then. It is very hard for me not to connect Absalom's plot with Jonadab. That's hard. Absalom's plan sounds just like Jonadab. I mean, how can Jonadab keep a secure position in the kingdom? By simply staying in tight with whomever's going to be on the throne after David. So, at first he may have thought that would be Amnon. But now that Amnon is persona non grata due to raping his sister, maybe it'll be Absalom. So I need to be in tight with Absalom. I mean, how else do you explain why Jonadab knows that only Amnon has died? And how does he know that before any of the king's sons actually return? Sounds fishy to me. And by the way, he chooses to comfort David with this. He's basically saying, well, David, you didn't give Tamar justice. Absalom has. You didn't punish Amnon. And now you can't punish Absalom either. Isn't it funny how our sin keeps us from calling other things sin? Again, it's all godlessness. Absalom murders his brother in anger, hate, and calculated revenge. He's controlled by his desire for revenge. But here's the point. For those of us that follow Jesus, this is not the way. To quote the Mandalorian. This is not the way. This is not what we do. Listen to what Romans says. For those of us that are in Jesus, Romans says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, let me close. This whole chapter shows us in these moments ungodliness. It shows us godlessness. It shows us what it's like to live and act as though God doesn't exist or matter in our everyday lives. To substitute ourselves or other things or other desires for God. And in the end, you will worship that God. You will bow down and it will control you. It will demand your allegiance. Lust, the pride of wisdom, scheming for power, anger, bitterness, 
being paralyzed by your own hypocrisy, hate, vengeance, murder. So let me give you what the gospel means. Just as ungodliness is operating and living apart from God or without God, the opposite is also true. We should live before God and in His presence and for His glory in Christ. Christ died to free us from the bondage of living to please ourselves and our own desires. We now have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And in Christ, we are not left to godlessness. We are filled with Christ's Spirit, His abiding Spirit. The Gospel comes to us with the promise of being sealed and filled with His Spirit as we repent and believe. Christ's Spirit fills us, guards our hearts, guides our steps. And that is our privilege as God's children, to be filled with His Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit as we abide in Jesus and obey Him. Listen, that's what the Spirit does, is the Spirit takes our rebellious and ungodly tendencies and shapes them and remakes them and guides us towards Jesus. This is the, this is the sum of the whole matter, Titus 2. Turn in your Bibles there, I want to read this last, Titus 2. Go to Titus 2, this is why the gospel matters. Titus chapter 2. If you're there, say Amen. If you're not there, say, hold on. Hold on. There you go. Henry's got a punch quicker on his phone. Titus chapter 2. Write this down. Think about this the rest of the day. This is why the gospel matters in our battle and our disposition towards godlessness. Our default position to live and act apart from God. He says in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So we renounce that and instead we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. We're not bound to live ungodly lives. We yield to Jesus, filled with his spirit, and walk in humility with him, so that all of our mind, thought, hearts, actions, and attentions are filled with Christ, and are therefore godly. Walk with Jesus, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you would take this, challenge us, encourage us. And Father, mostly, Father, we pray for repentance. Father, for all of us, Father, struggle with ungodly lust. All of us struggle with ungodly wisdom. All of us struggle with ungodly anger. And Father, all of us sometimes seek ungodly revenge. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, we would see that in us rightly. And Father, we would come to Jesus. And Father, we would lay that aside so that we don't have to be controlled by those things, but we can walk by the Spirit. So Father, now we pray you would speak. We pray this in Jesus' name.